loved by Jesus. I don't know of a better phrase that I could ever say <clears throat> in regard to truth than that fact that Jesus loves us. And that's our theme of these weeks preceding Easter and a little bit after Easter. Author Lloyd C. Douglas used to tell how he loved to visit an old man who gave violin lessons because this teacher had a, just a homespun wisdom that refreshed him. One morning, Douglas walked in and said, well, what's the good news today? Well, putting down his violin, the teacher stepped over to a tuning fork suspended from a cord and struck a smart blow. There's the good news for today. He said, that, my friend, is the musical note A. It was A all day yesterday and will be A next week and for a thousand years. So many changeable things. The good news is that A does not change. William Carey, a pioneer in modern missions who suffered much in going to India, said, I have God and his word is sure. And though the superstition of the heathen were a million times worse than they are, if I were deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my hope fixed on that sure word would rise superior to all obstructions. I shall come out of all trials as gold purified by fire. How could he have that perspective? Because he knew of the unchanging love of Christ. Folks, the good news this morning is Christ's love is absolutely certain. Uh, this is just one of the wonderful truths of the Word of God. In fact, that scarlet thread runs all throughout uh, the Word of God. Turn with me to John chapter 13, this precious passage of the teaching of the, uh, the Lord Jesus to His disciples. John 13 begins the final section of teaching before He gives his life a sacrifice for us. Up until this time, he's had public ministry, but this officially ends the Lord's public ministry. He now turns to the preparation of his disciples for what was going to initially seem like a horrific uh, defeat, discouragement, uh, beyond what they could even imagine. They could sense that it was coming, and so he laid the groundwork for them to understand what he was doing and the, the fact that Everything he has said was true and that they could count on him. So this was a very important time. And he begins with a very important illustration that proves his love toward us. Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of the world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. What a wonderful truth. Christ is an eternal love. This is something we know, but it is something that we need to get a hold of. And, uh, and so as we look at this persistent love of Christ, number one here, it's an eternal love. C.H. Spurgeon said, Jesus will know his people to the utmost end of their unloveliness. Their sinfulness cannot travel so far, but what his love will travel beyond it. Their unbelief shall not be extended to so great a length, but what is his fair unless still shall be wider and broader than their unfaithfulness. 
And so his love was going to complete his task. He was going to love them unto the end. It was a decision of his will. Now he knew that his hour was come. He knew that he was hours away from going through great suffering that evening in the Garden of Gethsemane to Caiaphas's palace. And there he would be beaten 39 times and put in that dungeon. Then the next day, he would have early in the morning on the Passover the brutal uh, scourging of the Romans and the mocking and the crown of thorns and all that he would go through. He knew that was coming. And of course, he knew that this was the sublime reason for his coming to pay the price for our sins that we could not pay. And so he knew that it was time for him to do this and depart unto his father and he was going to love his own, and you can put us into that category. He was going to love them unto the end. He was going to accomplish his purpose because his love is an eternal love. It's an eternal commitment. Make no decision, make, make no, uh, don't have any doubt about it. Jesus made a decision way before the foundation of the world. He was the Lamb slain. And the Father, the Son, and the Spirit made the decision to provide for our redemption. And he was determined to finish that course. Folks, to have the love of Christ is to be determined for others. Sacrifice is a decision made ahead of time. A life of obedience to God is a decision we make because we love him. And that's exactly the kind of heart that the Lord Jesus had. And it was a sacrificial decision. And for believers, it's, it's amazing. Uh, as you look at 2 Timothy 2.13, it has all the different things. If we do this, then this will happen. But then we read in verse 13, If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Once you have come to know the Lord as Savior, he loves you to the end. He keeps his promise. His love is eternal. John 4, 33, Jesus saith unto them, My meat, speaking to the disciples there with the Samaritan woman, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Uh, then in the great high priestly prayer, which would be after this uh, teaching here, John chapter 17, verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And so it's wonderful to understand that this matter of his eternal love is seen in the completion of his, the will of the Father in his life. And uh, just as a quick application for us as believers, folks, we need to complete the tasks that God lays out for us. If we love him and we love our families and we love others, God has given us very clearly, just like the Father gave the Son the will, he has given us the, his will to accomplish and true love, pure love, finishes the task. It completes the job. His love is everlasting. John 17, 21, same high priestly prayer, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. He wants 
to, he was going to bring them into a oneness with him through his finished work on the cross. And this everlasting love would be an everlasting relationship with him, an everlasting commitment by him to us. Now, in this passage, you're familiar with it, this is the washing of the feet of the disciples by the Lord Jesus. And he makes the statement, uh, you have here actually the statement by the Holy Spirit that he loved them unto the end. It is proved by this servitude on the part of the Lord Jesus. It was the proof of his enduring love. For it was going to picture the enormity of what was going to happen on the cross. And so his commitment was an everlasting, eternal commitment. And folks, let me just say, you can be secure in God's love. Now, friend, if you're here this morning and do not know Christ as your Savior, God loves you. That's why he came and died for you. But this, this eternal love relationship is based upon uh, your accepting of his love through his gift on the cross not depending upon yourself, not thinking that you can face God's judgment on your own, but humbling yourself just like Christ gave us an example here in this passage, humbling yourself and admitting, I cannot, I cannot pay the price for my sins. I'm a sinner. I deserve God's eternal judgment. And my friend, the only way to escape that and have an eternal relationship with the Lord is to accept His eternal love, that free gift of His love that was manifest on the cross of Christ. And if you've never trusted in Him alone, my friend, everything I'm talking about right now does not apply to you. Oh, He loves you. He died for you. God so loved the world. But for you to experience that love in the family relationship that he so desires with us, and then to experience it throughout eternity in heaven will be based on the exercise of your will, as it is with every believer, to put your faith alone in Jesus. George Matheson was engaged to be married when he went blind. And rather than marry a blind person, his fiancée called off the engagement. Well, obviously he was brokenhearted. And he found solace only in God. And through this tragic experience, uh, he uh, penned the wonderful, beautiful hymn that we sing, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. And so, folks, we need to be secure in his love. It's eternal. He loved us to the end. He completed the task which allows him to then his perfect eternal divine love now is exercised in this relationship and he is committed to you. He's committed to me for eternity. And so what you see here is a demonstration of who your Savior really is. It's an everlasting love. And this is amazing to me. The second thing here is an unconditional love. Now, in this passage, you have two of the disciples brought to the forefront. And remember, this whole uh, perspective of loving to the end, to the completion, included these two in the sense that that's why he went to the cross and wanted to reach both of them. I'm speaking of, first of all, the one who would betray him, Jesus 
was going to wash the feet of Judas Iscariot. Now, folks, in just a few moments, I'm going to talk about the incredible, amazing display of the heart of God to wash the disciples' feet. But to wash the feet of a traitor, to wash the feet of one who is plotting revenge, to wash the feet of one who had so given himself over because of his reaction to the Lord. In fact, the Lord had been dealing with him uh, when that uh, ointment was given. The Lord clearly was, was after Judas at that point in trying to reach him. And even here at the Last Supper, uh, the Lord says, someone here is going to uh, betray me. And he made that very clear. Why did he do that? Because he was burdened to give Judas an opportunity to repent. But as he hardens his heart, we read in verse 2, and supper being ended, the de devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Satan, probably himself, came into the life of Judas. Now, once you get the picture, <laughs> here we are, the disciples. Here we are at this time in which they are to remember. Now, after Judas leaves, because this is still at, uh, before this occurs, at the time that Judas leaves, then, of course, when he teaches the upper room discourse, it's going to be only the believing disciples at that point. But here you have, in the midst of this sacred moment, Lucifer, the adversary of God, the deceiver, the liar, entering into Judas who had sold his heart because he had wanted to be part of the cabinet of the Messiah in the kingdom and everything about what he was doing was selfish. And when he saw that Jesus had a higher goal and this was a spiritual matter and God began to deal with him, he turned. Folks, the wrong decision, when God begins to deal with you, the, the horrifyingly wrong decision is to turn on God or the people of God because that person always loses. It's a reaching out of the love of God when God gets right down and shows us who we really are. Now here is Satan controlling Judas. And you see the love of the Lord. He gave Judas every opportunity to repent. Uh, when Judas comes with the soldiers of the Sanhedrin to the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, verse 50. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, a warm term, wherefore art thou come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus. You know, one of the greatest tests of a person's transformation into the likeness of Christ because this is Christ, is his reaction to the, to the one who does evil to him. Here, Jesus is endeavoring to reach him, and he serves him. The God of the universe, who's being betrayed under the leadership of the great betrayer, Satan himself. This is a titanic battle of the two major forces in the universe, God, of course, being the 
God Almighty, Satan being the created one, but still you have this great battle. And yet in the midst of this, instead of rising up and showing his omnipotent power and his holiness, he shows his holiness not through causing the place to explode, but showing his love. Holy, pure love. Folks, it's one we often overlook this. This is one of the most amazing moments in all of Scripture. And oh, what an example for us. One writer said, a person should drown the hatred of others in an ocean of love. And did not Jesus do that? We're to love our enemies. And my friends, to understand and receive the love of Jesus and to be able to fully embrace what we're looking at here as we see the humility of our Savior and His sacrificial love for us, we really do have to examine our hearts as to have we fully given over any bitterness, reaction, thoughts of revenge, frustration, hurts from the past that we've never really settled in our soul. We're to love our enemies. Do good to them to despitefully use you. That goes totally contrary to the, the fleshly nature. But the love of Christ can cause us to have the right attitude. And my friend, it may very well be that you do not have the thrill of the love of God in your heart, even though it's real and it's there, but you are not embracing it because there is an unsettled reaction in your soul to someone. And you've heard me often say, when something like this is mentioned and someone comes to mind, there it is. There it is. And I would encourage you, more than anything else you need in your life is to know the love of God. I would encourage you to settle that, release that. Do what God wants you to do about it. Follow the example of Christ. If he could wash Judas' feet then there's no one on earth that we should not be willing to serve. This is a powerful example. And frankly, it's one of the most debilitating problems that believers have. Is oftentimes tucked down on their hearts, there is this unwillingness to forgive. And then the other person is good old Simon Peter. He serves the one that would deny him. Wouldn't be long. It was going to be in this evening time that Peter was going to be at Caiaphas' palace out in the courtyard and three times, just like the Savior had said, he was going to deny his Savior. He was a self-willed believer and he was influenced by Satan. Praise the Lord, as a believer he could not be indwelt by him. But because of his uh, self-dependence, he was influenced like any of us can be. And the Lord, of course, confronts him, get thee behind me, Satan, just earlier, uh, just a little bit earlier than this account here. But uh, as you look, if you'll jump down with me to verse 6, after he begins to uh, wash the disciples' feet, then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, what I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. 
Jesus saith to him, He that is washed need not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. And so the Lord here is demonstrating to Peter ahead of time the need that he was going to have for the cleansing and forgiveness of the Savior. And he was going to give it. It was hard for Peter to accept that. It's very interesting when the angel there at uh, the tomb tells to, go, uh, to tell the disciples about the fact that he had risen, tell the disciples and Peter <laughs> the love of the Lord for his own. He loved Peter. Let him know that I've come out of the grave. Peter was able to have a private time with the Lord. We find, I believe, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Lord was so kind to draw him in, but it wasn't until uh, much uh, later by the Sea of Galilee that there the Lord recommissioned him and he accepted that and obeyed the Lord. He was devastated. And here we see that those who go, get away from God, who deny him, are not willing to stand for him, not willing to love him, are willing to go against his word knowing better that there is forgiveness, there is cleansing. And uh, it's a wonderful thing. Christ demonstrates here the need for us to have a forgiving spirit. He loves us to the end, and he loves us to the end of the development of our lives, as we'll see in a couple of minutes. And, oh, that ought to be in our heart. A man named John Oglesorp was talking to John Wesley and made the comment, I never forgive. Mr. Wisely, Wesley excuse me, wisely replied, then, sir, I hope that you never sin. <laughs> Aren't you thankful God forgives? The Lord Jesus forgives. He knew what he was going to do on the cross. He was going to pay personally the full judgment of hell for Peter in just a few hours. Stories told of an elderly grandfather who was very wealthy, but because he was going deaf, he decided to buy some pretty experienced, uh, uh, good hearing aids. Two weeks later, he stopped at the store where he'd bought it and told the manager he could now pick up conversation quite easily in the next room. Well, the delighted proprietor said, your relatives must be very happy to know that you can hear so much better. Oh, yeah, I haven't told them yet. He chuckled. I've been sitting around listening. And you know what? I've changed my will twice. <laughs> God's not changed his will toward his believers. I'm going to love you to the end. Think about how many dumb things we say. Think of the fickleness of our hearts, the double-mindedness. To think that we can say no to God. And the Spirit of God representing Jesus convicts us and we, no, to God. I'm telling you folks, if he reacted like we'd react, we'd all be in real trouble. But I got good news. He loves you to the end. He's working with you. And uh, he, wants, he wants you to have everything that he died to gain for you. Oh, on the cross that we'll be looking at in just a few weeks, 
Luke 23, 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. So he had unconditional love. Third, he had secure love. You see, he didn't have a love that needed to be reciprocated in the sense of his own sense of identity. Though he did make us for a relationship with him that delights his heart for our sake when we respond and desire to glorify God. Uh, one uh, writer said He's, he knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus was fully aware of his authority, his divine origin and destiny. Look with me right after the matter of Judas in verse 3. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. You see, nothing that Jesus did came out of any insecure need. He is not like us. Perfect, holy, omnipotent, uh, self-existent, the immutable God. Uh, again, that's so amazing to me. I want to say this. He does want our love. That's why he created us. But it comes out of a pure desire. So Jesus, he had nothing to prove. He was God. He had known that the Father had given everything into his hands. He was come from God. He was God, and he was going back to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. We see that clearly right at the beginning of his ministry when he was there being baptized by John the Baptist in Mark 1, 11, And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was humble. He humbled himself. You know, our self-awareness and our humility often comes out of insecurity and a sense of uh, uh, feeling inadequate. That's not the humility of God. It comes out of his perfection and his glorious, secure relationship with his Father. And so he was just completely uh, without any sense of insecurity in that relationship. That's why he could hear on the, with Satan's very presence in that room. He could humble himself and get on the floor and wash the disciples' feet because he knew he was God. He knew who he is. Christians, you see the screaming application here? You know how you solve insecurity? You need to know who you are. You're a child of God. Your worth does not come from your uh, human ability or your works. Your worth comes from your position in Christ. You are totally forgiven. You have been cleansed. You are created in righteousness and true holiness in your spirit. You are indwelt by the Shekinah glory of God. You are the temple of God. My friends, you and I are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. You need to know who you are. Listen, Satan can't accuse you and win when you understand who you are. I'm telling you, there's such comfort. Insecurities when we're trying to prove himself, ourselves, but when we realize we can't prove ourselves, we have, we have nothing to offer. Oh, wretched man that I am, but we have everything to prove about who we are in Christ and to glorify him. What peace and joy and security comes from that? 
That's why you can humble yourself and not worry about whether or not people are going to think something ill of you. We're afraid to humble ourselves because we're worried about our position, our status, our perceptions. We live in an image-making culture, folks. It's just, it is a really big problem. We are so concerned about what people think. You'll never serve if that's your burden. You'll never serve with the right motive. He showed the perfect selflessness of God. He was one with the Father. Father, Macaulay says, in that hour, Jesus was supremely conscious of three things. His universal sovereignty, his heavenly origin, and his destiny. The infinite swept his soul. He was, re he was released for the moment from the straightenment of the fleshly and knew the awful dignity of supreme eternal Godhead. He knew who he was. He was one with the Father. Can I read that wonderful passage from Romans 8 that helps us understand our position with the Father? Verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. So be that we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. The whole idea of adoption is not just that we've been brought into the family of God. We are treated as grown-up sons with all the rights of Jesus Christ. A new mother uh, stayed with her parents for several days after the birth of her first child. And one afternoon she remarked to her mother that it was surprising that the baby had dark hair since both she and her husband had fair hair. Well, the grandmother said, well, your daddy has black hair. Well, the daughter replied, but mama, that doesn't matter. I'm adopted. With an embarrassed smile, the mother said the most wonderful words her daughter had ever heard. I always forget. Well, that's sweet. But it's not even a matter of us being adopted like that, folks. We are in Christ. We are treated by the Father like we are the Son. I just can't fully wrap my mind about the, around that. And he forgets who we were. <laughs> and he takes us as we are in Christ. Folks, that's just shouting ground. That's who you are. That's your salvation. It is a great salvation. And so, in this passage here, we see the reason he could be humble with Judas, could be humble with Peter. <laughs> Both of those. I'm not sure we would do that. I don't care how mature we were. I don't think we could handle that. But Jesus did because he was God and he knew who he was. What a lesson for us. Really, the key for us to have effective sacrificial ministry really gets down to understanding our position in Christ. And finally, now we see the beautiful selfless love. We've already said it's eternal, it's unconditional. And it's wonderful because it's secure. And now let's look at this selfless love. Sometime during the meal, actually it was occurring during the meal, Jesus rose. He removed his outer cloak and a towel around his waist and began to perform the work of a servant who was not present. 
it was a voluntary humiliation that rebuked the pride of the disciples. What were the disciples doing before they came into the room arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom? <laughs> I think it got a bit thick in there when Jesus did that. And so this illustrates, this illustrates his sacrificial mission. Now, folks, again, he is showing that he's going to love them to the end. If he's willing to do this, then it's going to then illustrate to them when they see him on the cross, though I don't think they got it even at that point, but that what he was doing uh, there on his knees before their feet was exactly what he was going to do on the cross. Oh, it's a genuine picture of the heart of God. Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And Jesus humbled himself and became a servant. That beautiful passage there. This is a picture of his divine mission. One writer said it was in a moment of unusually keen realization of his divine nature, mission, destiny, and power that our blessed Savior laid aside his outer robes, tied a towel around his loins, and thus garbed in slaves' livery, went through the process of washing the feet of those dull-minded, dull-hearted men as carefully as, his, as he arranged the planetary systems. Will God wash man's feet? Will a holy God wash sinners' feet? He did. And he did it at a time when that would have seemed a very unnecessary detail in the eyes of any other man when he might have been wholly absorbed with the dreadful hour which was come upon him. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost. He took off his outer garment, just had his tunic on. This is how slaves would dress for a meal. And only Gentile slaves would do this, not Jewish slaves. So Jesus took the lowest of the low position that you can ever take but remember he was born in the lowest condition that a man would ever be born and here before the cross he identifies with all of the human race by becoming a slave he brought a basin of water but it was a picture of the deeper cleansing of the blood poured out in the sacrifice of atonement he had to stoop very low, low enough to wash the feet of the vilest sinner. So he shed his blood, not on the battlefield as a soldier, but on the cross as a malefactor, because that's who we are. Charles Wesley, his blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. You look at this, we read in verse 4, He riseth from the supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. He did it for Judas. And we're going to see here at the end, he did it for Peter. He did it for Andrew, for John, for James, for Nathaniel, the whole group each one. I think they were all paralyzed. 
It was a moment of spiritual tension that beyond what I can even begin to try to describe. Certainly the spiritual battle was there, but then the pride and the, and the wrong concepts were there. I'm telling you folks, when God begins to cut through in our lives, when God begins to cut through in the church and begin to expose the need for genuine humility and servitude, it really can be a major moment. Because real Christianity is this kind of Christianity. And it should cause us to realize that God wants us to serve. You know, I think many Christians are paralyzed. A teacher once told of a parable of a wild duck that became exhausted in annual migration and was left behind by the other ducks. The duck landed in a farmer's barnyard where it was fed daily and associated with the tame ducks. For a while, every time a flock of wild ducks flew over the barnyard, the duck had the urge to join him, but since his life was so easy in the barnyard, it stayed. During all this time, the duck did not fly. The next year, a flock of wild ducks flew over. The call of them was so strong that the duck determined to join them. But when he tried to fly, he could no longer do it. He had lost his ability by failing to do it. Now, the good news is that we're not like that illustration. But initially, when we live for self, when we are insecure, when we're constantly trying to prove ourselves, when we are unwilling to humble ourselves, when we're unwilling to let the love of Christ flow through us, when our lives are not genuinely spirit-filled, and when opportunities to meet the needs of others and to tell the lost world the gospel and to to truly sacrifice in our families and we continually pull back, pull back, we can be paralyzed by that wild duck, hardly knowing how to fly. However, God's grace is sufficient. That's the difference. And we can learn to fly again. Wouldn't it be wonderful if believers all across America started flying again? Wouldn't it be wonderful if believers all across America would take a towel and a basin and begin to realize life is not about us. We have nothing to prove. Who are we? We're children of God. He's God. Get on our knees and start giving of our lives to the cause that he's called us to. I'll guarantee you these disciples were just overwhelmed by this over and over and over. And this also does illustrate his sanctifying work in and through us. Back to Peter's story. Peter says, you know, he, he just impetuously was, was uh, constantly saying things that he shouldn't say and don't wash my feet, Lord. And he was right in the sense that this was not right. Jesus, the Son of God, shouldn't be doing that, but that wasn't up to him to tell Jesus that. He's forgetting that Jesus knows what he's doing. By the way, folks, we forget too. If we really thought and knew in our hearts that Jesus knew what he was doing, we'd follow him all the time. We call him the Lord Jesus. So we're a lot more like Peter than we'd like to admit. And then when he said, well, if you're not going to let me wash your feet, you're not going to part with me. He said, well, then wash me all over, you know, good old Peter. And uh, he says, you don't need that. He's just, he was already justified. He was a child of God. But he said... Uh, the fact that uh, you need the continual cleansing. You see, Peter was still filled with self, and he was going to learn 
being broken with his denial. Then God, the Lord Jesus, recommissioning him. And then as they spent those days in prayer after the ascension, and then the Spirit of God came upon him, Peter began to understand that God could transform him. Form him. What does Peter say at the very end of his epistle just before his, his uh, martyrdom? But grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep growing. You know, an iceberg, if you've ever studied those, 10% of the iceberg is above the water, 90% is below. But if it warms up uh, in the season, summer season of the year, the 10% gets melted down, and guess what happens? Up comes the iceberg, the next 10% comes up. And then it's warm, that gets melted, and then it continues to go until the iceberg is fully melted. And isn't that the way it is with us? The patience and long-suffering of God's working as He continually is cleansing us. Folks, when we are walking in the Spirit, we can live at that moment in victory. We can walk with Jesus. Our hearts uh, are in the full light of His presence and the joy of the Lord is there. But as we walk, we're going to realize, wow, there are things in our life we still need to deal with. I didn't even think about it. And uh, then the, the sunlight of the warmth of God's presence will convict us and we deal with that. And what happens is our lives continue to mature and grow. All the time, though, folks, we can be walking with Jesus. We can be fellowshipping with Him. We can be enjoying the powerful relationship with Him. But there is a cleansing. There is a sanctifying. There is a transforming work that is going on. By the way, that's why you don't want to spend times, uh, lengthy times away from God. Because all of those issues get all hardened in your heart again. But if you'll stay tender and open and humble and let God work and let this one who loves us, who is serving us by convicting us and sending us his spirit, he will continue to unearth those issues and cause us to have greater and greater victory. Our problem is we don't take the simple admonition of 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, he'll, he'll, will love you to the end. He already had. He completed his purpose. The Holy Spirit is in us. He is working in our lives. He's knocking on our heart's door. He wants to have fellowship with us. He is going to continue to work if we will allow him to work. That's the kind of love that is there. And because of that, that love should flow through us so we can have the same ministry of love to others. Jesus loves me, and he loves you. In fact, he loves us to the uttermost. He loved us to the end of completing the purpose on the cross. Friends, are we responding to that love? Let's bow for prayer.